so it's like the sound of music where 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 she sings um she says nothing comes from nothing nothing ever could you know somewhere in my youth and childhood i must have done something good i'd like to sing it but i don't think it would be edifying <laughs> so i won't but that's that's the theology of james comforters isn't it um there's no such thing as grace i must have done something to deserve it and the flip side is if something bad happens i must have done something to deserve it Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. This is the audio series for people who read the Bible, study the Bible, not just for themselves, but because they want to give it back out. So when we study the Bible, we're studying it to the degree that we can own it, deeply understand the theme and the aim of the book that we are studying, because we want to be able to teach it to others, uh, teach it rightly and creatively and effectively. And I'm talking today with one of my favorite Bible teachers. We actually haven't met until today, but I have listened to many of his sermons online in this wonderful age of the internet when we are able to do that. I am in Cambridge, England at the home of Christopher Ashe, he and his wife, Carolyn, and I'm so grateful to get to be here with you, Christopher. We're very glad to have you here. Uh, not only have I listened to a number of your sermons, but I have found it interesting how many people I admire who have said that the commentary you wrote recently on the book of Job, they describe it as the finest commentary that they've ever read. They're very kind and generous. <laughs> well, it's certainly um, reading it myself and hearing those things has uh, certainly made me want to be here and talk with you about that book. But before we do that, perhaps you can help us get to know you a little bit better. You served as many years, for many years, as the director of the Cornhill Training Course for Proclamation Trust. Uh, in the States, not many of us know what that is. Tell us what that is. The nearest equivalent in the, in the States would be the Simeon Trust and their training courses for preaching. But the Proclamation Trust Cornhill training course is a, is a full-time or part-time uh, non-residential training course in the centre of London. And for the past 11 years, I've been serving there, training people to preach and teach the Bible. It's a very practical course, so we don't set any written work. You don't set any written work? What do you, what no do you mean? What do you work. do? So we set spoken work, mm. because most Christian ministry, Bible teaching ministry, is spoken rather than written. So the students have to do a lot of practical speaking exercises. And every time they do, we give them constructive feedback. So over the year, are you pretty much just working your way from Genesis to Revelation? Or how does the course of study work? No, we do a representative mix of Bible books, different types, Old, New Testament, and so on, um, and and different genre. So we do some, some work on Old Testament narrative or wisdom or poetry, that kind of thing. Um, so we don't cover the, the whole Bible systematically. We try to do some books more thoroughly. So who's a typical student? I guess a typical student would be uh, mid-20s to mid-30s, has had some experience of, of either leading Bible studies or possibly preaching and giving Bible talks. And they come to us, they, they, they serve an apprenticeship in a local church. And they, then they work with us. We serve the local church, giving them a couple of days a week of practical Bible training. 
it's it's really pretty unique. I guess it fills a a, a unique space in between maybe studying Bible in an undergraduate college and going to seminary. Yes, I think that's exactly it. We're trying to get the the main foundations of expository Bible preaching and teaching into their bloodstreams. And a number of them go on to do formal theological studies and then to be pastors or the like. But they're given that really solid foundation having worked their way through the scriptures, which sometimes in seminary it can be focused on so many other things. There's not that rigorous just getting to know the Bible deeply. I think that's right. I think that seminaries have so many other worthwhile things to do that it's hard for them to give people that intensive practical training in preaching and Bible exposition. So you've also been a pastor, written a number of books. You wrote uh, Teaching Romans for Christian Focus, and then, of course, recently this um, work in the Preaching the Word commentary series for Crossway, Job, the Wisdom of the Cross. Now, you and Carolyn just moved here recently to Cambridge from where you were. So what are you guys doing now? Are you just working in the garden? That's a really good question. We've we've left. My health hasn't been so good for the last three years. And we came to the point we decided we had to move out of central London. So I handed over the responsibility for Cornhill. And we've I've left the Proclamation Trust staff. We've moved to Cambridge. And we're seeking God's leading as to what our ministry priorities should be. Uh, for me, I'd love to restart some writing. And uh, What would you uh, like to write next? I'd love to write something on teaching Esther. Mm. And I'd love to write something on teaching the Psalms and John's Gospel. Those well, are my top. I think that means I'm going to have to make another trip to Cambridge. Simply. Well, that would yeah. be, we should welcome that. <laughs> we'll talk about Esther next time. That sounds good. But today, let's talk about this ancient book, Job. What an incredible book of the Bible. Unique book of the Bible, isn't it? Um, perhaps maybe even the first written? Maybe. Maybe. It's certainly recording events that were very early on. So such an ancient book. Why would anybody today think that they might want to spend, you know, a few weeks, maybe even a few months teaching through this ancient book? That's a really good question because it's a daunting book. But God is unchanging, and the issues with which the book of Job is grappling are unchanging. What's our expectation of the life of faith, of a believer? How does God... Well, I was put onto it by a friend of mine, Bob File, wrote a little book on Job, and it was called How Does God Treat His Friends? It's a good title, isn't it? Provocative title. How Does God Treat His Friends? And that the more I've grappled with it, the more I've, I've thought it's very, very applicable to the church today. Not just prosperity teaching, which it undermines, but what I sometimes call the therapeutic gospel, that, that God is there to make me feel better. And the book of Job is really sobering and bracing and makes us think deeply about God and his character and how the world is governed. Yeah, you, you mentioned a couple that it's often... Uh, it, it really confronts the health and wealth gospel. That makes me wonder, are, are there some typical ways that you quite often hear Job taught wrongly? Yes, yes. I was very shocked once speaking somewhere on Job 
And people came up to me and said, um, surely the problem with Job, the reason he's suffering, is that he must have sinned. And if he was pleasing God more, then he would be blessed, which is precisely the message of Job's comforters. But that's what these people had been taught in, I think, prosperity circles. And I was really shocked because it was so diametrically opposed to the message of the book. Um, but that's certainly a disastrous way to teach it, that, that, that Job is, yeah. you know, that's why he's suffering. Well, it does raise an issue that I've uh, struggled with at times with using passages from Job. And that is you've, you've got this book. If you do know that that his comforters get things wrong, you've got chapters and chapters in the book of Job where they are presenting what they believe is truth about who God is and how he works. And so I always feel a little nervous when I when I see someone quote a verse out of Job. I'm always wanting to go look up where it is in Job and who's saying who it, said it? Yes, yes. <laughs> so that I can figure out, well, is, is this actually a reliable, trustworthy statement yes. a, about God? Is, yes, yes. Is that... Is that smart to do or, or how do we deal with all these sections where we know these uh, comforters are not saying what's right about yes, God? Yes, that's right. I thought, I've thought a lot about the comforters. I was thinking just this morning that I think the problem with the comforters is that they believe in the law but not the gospel. Mm. So they believe in, in a God who is supreme and so does Job and they believe in a God who is just and so does Job. But what they don't believe in is undeserved suffering and therefore they don't believe in undeserved blessing. So they don't believe in grace ultimately. So it seems to me that they're, 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 they're law people and therefore some of what they say is true, but they're not gospel But people. not the whole picture. Yes. All right. So when you miss out undeserved blessing – so are there sections of Job that you would say, well, no, what they're saying there is not right, so that you couldn't pluck it out and it be true? I think the problem with the comforters is that it's all so mixed in. That's what's so dangerous. If it was just rubbish, we could save money on our Bibles and just cut them out. But it's because it's such a dangerous mixture of truth and falsehood. And I think it's partly a warning to us because – you know, I read through the comforters and I want to cheer quite often. I think, yes, you've got this right. And uh, then God says, no, you haven't got it right. <laughs> so that warns me as, as, as well. But I think it's this refusal to believe in undeserved suffering, which is the flip side. If there's no such thing as undeserved suffering, then there's no cross and there's no undeserved blessing. There's no grace. I think that's the thing. I think most people probably when we think about the book of Job, we think that is a book about suffering, about human suffering. Is that what the book of Job about is about? I guess it is primarily about God and God's character and how God governs the world and how God treats a real believer. So I would have thought we want to say it's primarily about God. We're looking to think what 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 does this teach us about God and his nature and his means, his works, his methods? And then also, in what way does Job foreshadow Christ? It is about us, but not primarily about us. Primarily about God and his glory.
Well, why don't we just start working our way through this book? We'll try not to get too bogged down in those middle, all of those arguments, but we certainly have to focus a lot on these first couple of chapters and then how it concludes. Um, It begins by just introducing us to this man named Job. And the writer of this book of Job seems to want us to know some things in particular about Job that must have import to then understanding what's going to happen to him. Why do you think the writer of Job tells us these things he tells us about Job at the very beginning? It's really striking, isn't it? The very first verse, we're told he's blameless and upright. He fears God and he turns from evil. And then God repeats that in chapter 1, verse 8. And then God repeats that again in chapter 2, verse 3. Who wouldn't love to hear that God said that about Yes, him? yes. And I guess the reason is that if God hadn't told us three times that Job is a real believer, he's a genuinely penitent man, he turns from evil and he trusts God. He's not perfect, but he trusts God. Then before very long, we'd stop believing it because the comforters are so persuasive. And so we need to hear it those three times. Help us with those specific words when we're teaching. How do we explain to people what it means? Um, The translation I'm looking in says he's blameless and upright. That kind of sounds like perfection when we say blameless. Yes. And I think the, the word blameless, as I understand it, means having integrity being the same on the inside as on the outside. What you see is what you get, that he's genuine rather than sinless. And upright, I think, means he behaves right in his dealings with other people. I think that's the primary sense of it. Um, so so it, it, it becomes clear as you read through that he's not sinless, and he doesn't claim sinlessness, but he's what I think the Apostle John would call someone who's walking in the light. It's certainly in integrity. Yes. There isn't a hid, something hidden, a hidden evil in him. And which that's is what, what the comforters say. Exactly. The comforters say you're just yeah. a pious hypocrite. So we discover there at the beginning he's, he's, a, he's a great man in many ways. He seems to have what is the perfect family. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, he seems to have lots of money. Yeah. So we would certainly in Old Testament times, we think he's ble- God has really blessed him. Yes. Uh, and then we come to this the end of this introduction about him. And it's kind of interesting. It says that he's always concerned that maybe his uh, children might have sinned. And so he gets up early in the morning and offers a sacrifice for them. And I love this. Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Yes. Yes. It's it's that shadow over those first few verses, isn't it? That, that sense that it is possible to be greatly blessed but to curse God in the heart, that behind the facade there may be that inward unbelief. And he's aware of that, and he knows of the need of sacrifice. So there's something there he understands about human sin and the need for sacrifice. Yeah, that can be a challenging thing, I think, when we're teaching that book. Um, Mm. I can just picture someone's hand going up and saying, well, how would he have known anything about sacrifice if you're saying this is long before the law was given? Yes, yes. How How would you answer that? How how indeed? I don't know. It's a wonderful thing that Job, who seems to have lived in patriarchal times. Yeah, so perhaps around the time of Abraham. Yes, maybe around the time of Abraham. Who knows? Um, And yet, in some way, he doesn't seem to have been an Israelite, as far as we can work out. Um, But but he seems to know somehow 
that God is pure and sovereign and that sacrifice is necessary for sin. I don't know how he knows that. It's rather wonderful. (laughs) But he does. (laughs) He clearly does. All right. So then as we continue in chapter one, we get to be privy to this scene uh, going on behind the scenes that Job actually never gets to be privy to himself. Uh, But once again, in these early verses there, um, verse six of Job, once again, I anticipate hands going up when I'm teaching this. When it says, uh, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. Um, and so uh, we, we just wonder what's happening here. So the angels are coming and Satan is coming to present themselves. How do we describe what is taking place here? Yes, and present themselves is like an official being in the Seems presence like being of. being summoned into a court. Yes, right? it's like a sort of heavenly cabinet meeting really. And it's 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 a strange thing for us. And uh, you you meet it again. You get it in one Kings chapter twenty two. You get it in some of the Psalms, Psalm eighty nine, Psalm eighty two. You get it in Genesis six. The idea that there are literally, I think, literally what sometimes translated angels is literally sons of God, which means they're derivative from God. They're sub divine. But nonetheless, they are superhuman. And I think the point is that, that, that God governs the universe through supernatural powers, greater than human. They're not divine. They're not God. There's only one God. But there are these supernatural powers. The government of the world isn't a purely natural and human phenomenon. And the presence of the Satan amongst them just suggests that that, that some of these supernatural powers may be evil, and yet God uses them to govern the world. I sometimes explain it like this, that, that there are two very common ways of thinking how God governs the world. There's the sort of animism or polytheism, where there are lots of gods and goddesses um, generally quarrelling and fighting around. You never quite know who's going to win. And we say, well, that must be wrong. And then there's the model where you just have one god and everything he says goes And lots of Christians buy into that. But actually, it's not quite the Bible model. The model is that there's one God and what he says goes. But he governs the world through the instrumentality of these supernatural powers, some of whom are evil, which is a strange thing, isn't it? I think think the, the one God and what he says goes model can become, as I understand it, what Islam teaches. Whereas the Bible teaches this more complicated and I noticed you called him the Satan. Yes. Uh, you know, explain that to us. Why well, would you call a, him a, the Satan instead of Satan? Instead of Satan. I guess because it's literally a title rather than a name, the enemy, the adversary, the hostile one. Um, I think that's that's the reason, really. I guess when I read this story of Job, I'm a little bit disappointed to see that it's God who brings up Job's name. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, it goes back to your friend's book about this book's about the book of Job saying, is this how he treats his friends? I kind of want to go, okay, God, why are you bringing up Job's name? You seem to be setting him up for what is ahead. And that's a little bit troubling for some of us. Yes, yes. And I think it goes to the heart of the book. Why is God, why is Satan going to and fro? What's he doing? What's, What's his job? Is he just a teenager who says, I've just been doing stuff? Or is he actually doing something more significant? 
And I think the implication is that the Satan's job is to see if there's any genuine believer on earth who worships God because God is God. And he doesn't think there is, which is why he says, no, Job isn't, you know, God says Job is a real believer. He's genuine. He's the real thing. And Satan says, no, he isn't. He's just a, he's just a prosperity gospel. He's just in it for what he gets out of it. And that seems to be the issue. And I think it's the glory of God that the God will be honored when a human being bows down before him purely and simply because he's God. And I, 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 I found the verse at the, in 1 Peter chapter 1 really helpful, where Peter says to Christian people who are suffering, these, these trials you're suffering, they were necessary um, so that the genuineness of your faith will redound to praise and glory and honor. In other words, it will, it will bring honor to God when somebody is proved to be genuine, and only suffering will do that. It also doesn't it uh it seems an assault on God yes. uh, because if it is true that there is no genuine believer, it's assault on God's worthiness mm. of being loved mm. just for who he is and not just yeah. for what we can get from him. Yes, I think exactly that. Exactly that. And it matters that there is a, a human being who really does worship him and acknowledges his glory and greatness and goodness. So Basically, Satan decides, okay, well, if I make him hurt enough, uh, he will curse you to your face. And then once again, we're just kind of disappointed because the Lord says, very well, you can do it. Although he does seem to set some parameters for that at the beginning. He does. He does. And the, and the parameters, to start with, you can't attack Job himself. And then the second time round, you can attack Job himself, but you mustn't kill him. And I think the reason is that he's got to stay alive because if he's not alive, he can't give glory to God. And it's necessary for him to give. If he, if he, once he's dead, you're never going to know whether he's genuine. But so long as he's alive, he can actually prove his genuineness to the glory of God. I think that's the, the, the logic. Job, of course, wishes he could die. Mm -hmm. Well, the next, then there comes the day. When all of this happens and one day – and then it's, it's so um, relentless, right? All of, this all of this loss, pretty much everything he owns uh, is, is taken from him through these natural disasters as well as – I liked it in your commentary where you called it a terrorist attack. I mean that makes it very modern but of course that's exactly what it is. I think so. A terrorist attack and then it's just while he's still speaking, then – Messenger after messenger comes to tell him more about what he's lost. And so uh, Job is told by these messengers that uh, nearly everything he owns has been destroyed. And then, of course, nearly everyone he loves, all of his ten children, have died. And at, at the end of chapter 1, we get a glimpse into an incredible response to loss. Mm. Tell us about that. It's very, very remarkable, isn't it? Naked I came... From my mother's womb, naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. It's a wonderful response of faith, and it seems to contradict the devil's... The devil has said he'll curse you, and he doesn't curse God. Later on, he does say some pretty hard things, but at this stage, he doesn't curse God. 
In fact, he says he's to be praised. Yes, yes. Yeah, and then it seems to be answering the big question of the book, which is, will he curse God or not? Mm. In the very last verse of chapter 1, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So then he comes around for round two. That didn't seem to work. He is he is relentless. And so just as God set the parameters in this first one where he said that you can um, you can take you can harm him, but you can't touch his body. Now those parameters change. Well, you can attack him. So this Satan says just killing everybody he cares about and taking all his wealth and honor. Of course, that doesn't really matter, does it? As long as you're healthy, you've got to go for his health. And then he's then you're going to see what he's really like. And it seems to be because there's something in it, isn't there? There's something in that is it's the sense of you can take away my possessions. You can take away people. But so long as I'm fit and healthy, um, you know, I, I, I maybe I'll keep going. Well, then these three friends show up. Um, Eliphaz, the Timonite, Bildad, the Shuhite and Zophar, the Namathite. And they've, they've heard about the troubles, although once they get there, they can hardly believe uh, what they see when they, they see Job. And uh, there's often much made of the fact that when they first come, they, uh, they just sit and they're silent with, with him. Mm-hmm. And people often say that's a good thing. What do you think? I think it's ambiguous. Okay. <laughs> I think there's a sense in which sitting there in silence is what you do with a corpse. Mm. That's what you do when you're mourning for a corpse. You sit there in silence for seven days. That's what they do. I think they're treating him as if he he might as well already be dead. It's as though they sit there with the open coffin. We just wait till he goes, then we'll pop him in it, and that'll be that. So I think it's ambiguous. I, I think we sometimes impose our counselling wisdom and say how good it is to listen, and they were listening. Well, they weren't listening. They were just sitting there in stony silence <laughs> so i'm not sure about that well then job opens his mouth and when we read this we almost wonder if this is the same person that we read about because in the in the previous chapters in chapter 1 he's praising the lord and then at the end of chapter 2 um he's saying shall we accept good from god and not evil but then something seems different in chapter 3. What's I happened? think Job 3 is one of the most moving laments in the Bible. Um, I think it's a very, very deeply moving lament. Here's this man who's a real believer, and it is so dark and so painful and so terrible for him. And I think it's quite important not to skip past chapter 3 too quickly, because it's not the beginning of the cycles of speeches it's just a i don't think anyone's listening it's a monologue really he's just uh, lamenting but it's very deep and dark the first time i preached this we had no music so i warned people i said if you come next sunday evening we're we're, we're not going to have any music and it was a very strange church gathering with no music. We read Psalm 88. We read one of Jeremiah's laments. We heard a bit of the life of William Cooper and his depression. Um, and then I preached Job 3. So it was a really cheerful evening. <laughs> but it was. It I was, bet it was a relief to a lot of people there. It was good. Right? Because to see, it's part yeah. of 
part of life experience that doesn't get acknowledged necessarily, especially in sometimes a happy, clappy church environment. Yes, yes, it challenges our superficiality. So you say this is an important lament. What is at the heart of of what Job is saying here? I think at the heart of Job, it's this question, why? Verse 20, why is light given? And the passive given suggests that God has given it. And again, verse 23, why is life given? Um, why to, 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 to a man whose way is hidden. And it's the disquiet of verse 26, no peace, no quietness, no rest, just turmoil. I think that's what it expresses, that question, why, why, why? He doesn't cease to be a believer. He still knows he's got to deal with the one who's given it. But he's, he can't understand it. And I think part of the thing is that Job starts from the same position as the comforters. So his starting understanding is that there's one God and he's sovereign and he governs the world and he's just. And so presumably good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And that's the starting point of any morally serious person. I mean, isn't that the dominant way the world is seen today? Yes. I mean, any morally serious person, religious or irreligious, assumes something like that. And so that's where Job starts. And the, the difference is that the comforters won't let the evidence get in the way of a good theory. Whereas Job, the evidence does get in the way of a good theory. And he's troubled by it. And he's thinking, I know I haven't deserved this. So why is it happening? Well, help us as teachers. I'm thinking about when you taught this and there was no music and everything was very dark. Um, I'm imagining myself, I ha- I've decided I'm going to teach through the book of Job in maybe, I don't know how many weeks you would ideally break it down. Let's say eight or ten. But you've said that chapter three is very significant and I'm going to spend maybe one week on chapter three. Um, but it certainly doesn't resolve when you taught this, did you just leave it unresolved or how did you I, – in I, practical te- <laughs> terms, I mean, what did what did you do with it? I That's, mean because yeah. you mentioned Psalm 88 I and mean, it's kind of unresolved yes. anguish. Yes. It's very dark. I No, I didn't leave it completely unresolved because I'm a minister of the gospel. Okay. <laughs> and I didn't know whether people who were there that Sunday were going to be there the next Sunday. So I had to give them some gospel hope in Christ. So I, rightly or wrongly, I took it at the end to the darkness of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, lonely, alone, with the, the darkness of the cross overshadowing him, and just gave a little bit of gospel from there, not to resolve all the tension, but just to say this is a foreshadowing of the gospel of Christ. Yeah. And it's always when, a problem, isn't it, when you're leading a Bible study or, yes. or, 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 or preaching or... Especially a long book like this, because Mm. really this takes a whole book to resolve. And in some ways it ends in some ways still somewhat unresolved. I mean, we come to it with the questions we want answered. And, you know, his three friends in Job, they had questions they wanted answered and they don't all get answered. No. Right. So if you were teaching this book of Job, then over eight to ten weeks, how many weeks did you do it like when you preach this book you're not one of those people who like preach and there's somebody who like preached 
over this book for like years and years, years and years. Which is a wonderful idea, but they'll, <laughs> they'll never get to hear Romans or John's gospel. <laughs> so better get to it. Right, <laughs> so life so. is too short for that. So I'm against very short series, you know, where, where someone tries to cover the whole book and the first talk or sermon is on chapters one and two. And the third talk is on chapters 38 to 42. And then some poor junior member of the preaching staff is is told, would you mind preaching the middle one on chapters 3 to 37 or whatever it may be? Um, and How that, would you that naturally really break work. that down then into I, more I, units? I think I'd break it down. I mean, you've got to have one on chapters 1 and 2 at least. Uh-huh. Otherwise, you don't know how the story starts. I would have one on chapter 3, I think. Uh, on its own, okay. I think. I mean, you don't have to, but mm-hmm. I, I would. You've got to have at least one on the Lord's speeches at the end, um, if not two. But I wanted to give something. I wanted to have at least one in which we're preaching one of the comforter's speeches or something about the comforter's. So we get a way into understanding their speeches. I think you can do that if you took, say, chapter 18, Bildad. It's a very good example of the comforter's theology. You could preach that. I think you want at least one on Job's speeches. I think I did a couple, but you could do chapter 9 and chapter 19. I mean, to some extent, it doesn't matter which you take, but um, just something so you get an insight into Job's speeches. And then you want something on, on the stuff that comes near the end, probably something on 29 to 31, which is Job's summing up speech. Maybe something on Elihu, although we'll probably yeah, come to him to later. Say, yes. okay. And then the Lord's speeches at the end. So I think my my thought is that in a teaching series, you want to kind of give people a way in. Of course, you give them the beginning and the end, but you give them a way in to the big chunks, sort of pathways into the woods. Are the three friends, are their arguments similar enough that you don't have to make it a goal in your teaching that people walk away understanding the unique arguments of each of them. So as you, you mentioned, yeah. you mentioned just pulling out the one of Bildad. I mean, mm. like if, if we were to do that in our teaching, would we be in a sense adequately expressing the the basis of their arguments? I think so. Okay. I, I, I couldn't find much difference between Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. It seems to me they're singing from the same song sheet pretty much. Uh, someone who's got more time might do a PhD on their distinctive theologies, but I doubt if it would lead to anything very significant. They seem to me to be three spokesmen. And how would you describe their basic argument? Well, I think their argument is, I I, I categorize their system as having four points. One, God is sovereign. True. Two, God is just. True. Therefore, three, uh, God will reward virtue and punish vice. And pretty soon, and certainly in this life. (laughs) Four, therefore, reading backwards, If I experience blessing, it must be a reward for virtue. If I'm punished, it must be a punishment for for vice or for sin. So it's like The Sound of Music, where where, where she sings, um, the Count has fallen in love with her, and she says, nothing comes from nothing. That's the, the theology of Job's comforters. Nothing ever could. You know, somewhere in my youth and childhood, I must have done something good. I'd like to sing it, but I don't think it would be edifying. 
<laughs> Sorry, we won't. But that's that's the theology of Job's comforters, isn't it? Nothing. There's no re- no way something undeserved blessing could come to me. Um, there's no such thing as grace. I must have done something to deserve it. And the flip side is, if something bad happens, I must have done something to deserve it. Where do, you, how would you characterize Job's response to that message from his friends? I think there are two things to watch for in Job's response. One is, well, three things perhaps to watch for. One is he's very clear that he himself is not being punished as a punishment for secret sins that he's hidden. Very clear about that again and again and again. He's accused of it and he says, no, that's not right. Um, so that's the first thing. The, the, the second is he, 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 he keeps grappling with God. He is a believer. He knows it's God he's got to deal with. And so he does keep coming back to God. He, he, he can't just abandon God. Um, but the third is this great perplexity that he, he can't work out what's happening. And he does say things he shouldn't say. Like what? So in chapter 9, he says, um, let's just take an example in chapter 9, verse... Um, 22, he says that God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Verse 23, God mocks the despair of the innocent. Verse 24, God blindfolds its judges. So he says, as far as I can work out, God is unjust. And then he says in verse 24, well, if it isn't God, who is it? Who could it possibly be? God's in charge. So if this, these bad things are happening to good people and good things are happening to bad people, um, what's going on? And I think that's why he gets told he must repent at the end. He seems to have an understanding, or like so many of the biblical writers in the Old Testament, right beyond what they know, in yes. a sense, since you're here in chapter 9, uh, Go down to verses uh, 32, 33, 34 in chapter 9 and tell us what you might do with those verses as a teacher when you got there. Yes, yes. Chapter 9, verse 32, God isn't a mere mortal like me. Uh, How can I take God on in court? We're just not equals. If only there were a mediator between us, verse 33. And there is this sense that I, I, I need to come face to face with the sovereign God in court, but I can't do that as a mere mortal. I need a mediator. And I think it is that anticipation of one day there will be a mediator between God and people. And I think by the Spirit of God, he is He is saying something more deeply true than he realizes. Absolutely. And he does that in a number of places, doesn't he? And supremely in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. Yes. Uh, It's an extraordinarily moving chapter, really. Yeah. Do you think when he says Redeemer, do you think he is thinking on this promised one, this the Christ? No, I think he's thinking of God as his Redeemer. I think he's saying... um, So chapter 19, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives. I think he's saying, I I know that God is going to stand up for me. So I think there's a sense in which Job foreshadows Jesus as Jesus trusts his father. He entrusts himself to the one who judges justly, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2. 
So I think the Redeemer there is God, if you like, God the Father, who is going to be his Redeemer, rather as God the Father was the Redeemer for Jesus. Mm -hmm. Continue on with those verses and, and help us understand how to best teach them. So I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. I think there's an extraordinary sense that the, he, he earlier in the chapter, he's, he's said that God seems to be doing what Satan is doing, tearing away at his skin and really ravaging him. And yet when it comes to it, he says, I cannot believe that ultimately the God I know is like that. And I do believe that in the end, the day is going to come when I will see him and he'll 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 stand up for me. He'll vindicate me. I think vindication is the key. So he's always throughout this. He's wanting God to show up and testify on his behalf. Exactly. That. Not? Exactly. You that. tell them it wasn't some secret sin. That's right. And he knows he knows that. When he dies, they're going to put on his gravestone. May he not rest in peace. He was a rotten old secret sinner, and that's why he's dead. <laughs> and he wants God to say, no, you're wrong. This one's one of mine. So it's about justification, really. Mm -hmm. He really seems to continue that note uh, in the chapters, kind of in the heart of the middle of Job, in chapters, what is it, uh, 29 and mm. 30 and mm. 31. He describes his life before the suffering talks about how things have changed. He basically lays out his case for his innocence and tells God, you know, I want you to show up and testify on my behalf that these things my friends have been saying about me are not true. And in your commentary, you say that his claim to integrity can only be understood by reading his speech in the light of the doctrines of justification and of union with Christ from the rest of scriptures. What do you mean by that? That really needs unpacking, doesn't it? Does. it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I tell you what I mean. Job 29, he says it used to be brilliant. Job 30, he says now it's awful. Job 31, he says I don't deserve it. And he goes through sin after sin and says if I'd done this, then I'd deserve it, but I haven't. If I'd done this, then I'd deserve it, but I haven't. If I'd done this, then I'd deserve it, but I haven't. And our, instinctively, we want to think, well, he's a self-righteous, priggish Pharisee. But we know he isn't. And so we're struggling to know what can he mean. And the problem we've got is very similar to the problem we have when in the Psalms, David claims innocence. Like Psalm 17, you can look however deeply you like into my heart and you won't find anything wrong. And we want to say... What about Pastor? We've read the story. You know. <laughs> um, so it, I think it's the same problem. And Romans 4 helps us because Romans 4 tells us that Abraham and then David were justified by faith and that their sins were not counted to them because of what Christ was going to do. So they were justified by grace alone, through faith alone. And if that was true for David, presumably it's true for Job. And therefore I take it that Job, when he, when he says, I'm innocent, He's got an innocence credited to him because of what Christ will do many centuries later. But also the union with Christ thing, in some anticipatory way, his actual life is beginning to change. In other words, he's not just saying this is uh, something credited to me, even though I'm a rascal. He's saying it's, it's credited to me, but actually this is a life-changing truth 
And I think he is saying, I, I, this is at least approximately so true in me. So an imputed righteousness, but also a genuine and real growing righteousness in his life. I think so. I think so. I think that's the way to make sense of it. That's what I, that's what I meant. I hope I'm right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so after Job, after Job's speech here in chapters 29 through 31, then we come to chapter 32 and another voice enters the conversation, that of Elihu. I think, I think usually oftentimes when we think about Job, we just think about these three comforters who come, uh, but we really, Elihu does have a different voice. He seems to have a different point. Uh, help us understand the uniqueness of what Elihu has to say. People struggle with Elihu, and my view on him may not be right, but I'll tell you it for what it's worth. Um, he's given four unanswered speeches, which is more than the others get, and the others are always answered. Um, he's not rebuked by God at the end. God rebukes Eliphaz and the other two, Zophar and Bildad. He doesn't rebuke Elihu. He's given these four unanswered speeches at a really important point in the book. And it's, it's, I think it's the warm-up for God's answers. I think he's a kind of Elijah figure giving the warm-up for God's answers. And I wrote a very short little book on Job some years ago called Out of the Storm, in which I thought Elihu was a kind of mixture of truth and error. But when I came to work carefully through every verse of this, I came to the conclusion that he's actually a genuine prophet. That, that Can I just stop you right yeah. there? Because I think this is of help to teachers. We want to teach the Bible rightly. And you're saying, I wrote a book about it before, and there's something I didn't get quite right. Yes. And with further study, now I would teach yeah. it differently. Yes. Um, I know for me, those kind of things, I agonize about them because yeah. I do love the Bible and I want to teach it rightly. Yeah. But I think it's helpful to know that even some of the very best Bible teachers, as you go back and study it again, you see something new and you realize, well, before I didn't have it quite right. I think that's right. It's always provisional, isn't it? We're never certain we've got it absolutely right. And the other thing is that to have a sense of proportion that whether we get our angle on Elihu right, and not a lot hinges on that. Okay. Nobody's yeah. eternal yeah. destiny is going to hinge <laughs> yeah. on that. And uh, it's quite good that, isn't it? You know, there are things we can be really confident about, the yes. gospel of the Lord yes. Jesus. And there are things in the Bible where, to be honest, we say, I think it's this, but I'm not absolutely sure. But I reckon Elihu's a good guy. And and there are two things particularly. In chapter 33, he gives this argument that C.S. Lewis called God's megaphone. Mm. From verse 19 onwards, he says sometimes God's going to be – someone's going to be in pain and distress. And and in their distress, they're going to cry out to God and God's going to rescue them, which C.S. Lewis famously said was – pain as God's megaphone to a deaf world. And Elihu seems to use that argument, which I don't think Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar have used. The other thing is that when you read through chapters 35, 36 and 37, at the end of Elihu's speeches, you get this tremendous sense of the greatness and grandeur of God the Creator. And if you're doing it musically, it would segue seamlessly into God's speeches in chapter 38. You wouldn't have to change key um, at all. It just goes straight. It would just go straight into chapter thirty-eight. 
So I think Elihu is a, is a, is a good guy and he's the warm-up. Help us to get ready for God speaking. If you were going to summarize Elihu's message in a sentence or two, can, or can you do that? I'm not sure that I can, but I, okay. I, I think it would be along the lines of God is very great and you can trust him. You can trust him that he has purposes of good, but I may be wrong. It's difficult. He makes these four speeches. He says quite a yes. lot of things. Well, that seems like a simple thing, and yet it's pretty significant, isn't it? He's I a good so. God. Yes. yes. And you can trust him. Yeah. Something we all need to hear. Well, Job has been so desirous for God to show up and speak for him, to testify on his behalf. And uh, when we get to chapter 38, he does come and he speaks uh, in a unique way and perhaps not what Job was hoping for. I don't know. What do you think about that? <laughs> what do you make of the Lord speaking to Job out of the storm? It's certainly a rebuke, isn't it? I think it's a, it's a loving rebuke because Job is affirmed at the end as a believer. And Job is the one who intercedes for his friends. He's the righteous one. Um, but I, I think it's what is really striking about it is in the first speech, it's not just that God's saying, I'm the creator and you're not. It's more nuanced than that, that, that what the Lord does is to draw attention to the extremities and the wild bits of the cosmos. So it's as though Job has been in charge of his area, the farm, as it were you know, the bit where he's in charge and it's ordered. But there's a whole bunch of wildness out there. And what's happened at the beginning is that the wildness has broken in. And God, you read the first speech, and it's about the wild bits, the extreme bits of the cosmos. So um, the Earth's foundation, 38 verse 4, or the sea particularly, chapter 38 verse 8, the, the Bible imagery of chaos and danger and darkness and evil. And then when you get to the animals, chapter 39, verse 1, it's the mountain goat. It's not the farm goat. Or verse 5, it's the wild donkey. Or verse 9, it's the wild ox. It's the, it's the wild stuff. And, and God is saying this stuff is outside your control, but it's not outside mine. And I think that's a really important thing to see that, 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 that God is saying. You know, the stuff you thought you could control. But there's a whole bunch of wild stuff out there. But actually, I'm the, the sovereign one over all of that. But I think, I think the point of the second speech is the agenda is set at the beginning of the speech in chapter 40 from verse 6 uh, through to verse 14, where God says to Job, um, why don't I give you my wig, my robes, my crown, and you try governing the world and punishing the wicked? Because that's what you say I'm not doing I mean, very well. I, I, I find some humor in that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you yeah, know, yeah, here yeah, God, yeah. God is speaking. He's like, it's, it's why like, don't you try to dress up me? You yeah. think you're so smart and you can administer justice in the world. You well, have a go. You go for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like that not terribly good movie. Um, what was he called? Bruce Almighty, uh -huh. which was slightly irreverent. But, yes. <laughs> but since... Bruce made such a mess of it. Maybe it wasn't quite as irreverent as all that. Yeah. It's the same. It had, had the message, right? The that same maybe you wouldn't message. want to be in charge. Yeah, yeah. So the question is, can you punish the wicked? Can you deal with evil? And if I, God, can deal with behemoth and leviathan, these 
monstrous pictures of supernatural evil. I can't. I, it's not just that I can deal with the wild stuff in the created order. I can deal with the wild supernatural stuff. I can deal with Satan and all his. Works. And this seems like a good opportunity for us as teachers. That many of the people we teach today. They see God and Satan in the world as two opposing yes. powers yeah. and would believe, okay, well, God is more powerful and we know he's going to win. Yeah. But something far deeper about God's power over use of, control of evil is being expressed here, isn't it? I think so. I think in my book I, I quoted what I think is – I think Luther once called Satan God's Satan in a typical provocative Luther expression. And I think his point is that Satan is evil, but Satan is a creature, and Satan does nothing that God has not ordained that he will do. And in some strange way that we can't understand, all the malice and evil of Satan is used by God to work out his purposes of good in perfect wisdom. And we can't, we find that very hard to understand. But it's deeply comforting. It'd be awful to think that God and Satan were autonomous powers like the Empire and the Republic in Star Wars fighting each other. You never quite know who's going to win, do you? What do you make of these last words we hear from Job here back in chapter 42, where he says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I mean, for one thing, we have to deal with the fact that now he's repenting. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I suppose if we read this in a shallow way, we say, oh, well, maybe he did have some big sin right, yes, that he needed yes. to, to confess. Is that the case here? The most helpful thing I saw on this was uh, by one commentary I was reading where somebody said, Job was not punished because he had sinned. But he does sin because he's suffering. In other words, he's not, he, he, his sufferings are not the consequence of some previous sin. But in his suffering, he does say things he shouldn't say. And it's of those he needs to repent. Um, and I think the sense is, my ears had heard of you. I sort of knew it in one sense, but my eyes have seen you. I think is a poetic way of saying, I, I, I've grasped something about you with a depth and clarity that I hadn't grasped it before. I think it's mm -hmm. something like that. So what do we do with this epilogue? So uh, mm -hmm. everything turns out so well. And, you know, if we're, if we're teaching this and we're dealing uh, with suffering, I mean, it can almost, it can almost sound like here's, here's, you might suffer a lot, but you know, God's going to make it up to you in this life. He certainly he certainly did for Job, this good person. So it, it, certainly that's not what we're supposed to take from it. What are we supposed to take from this uh, incredible restoration that he experiences after his repentance, his yeah. humble response and his repentance? And it is marvelous, isn't it? And you can see how a prosperity teacher would take that. You know, your problem is you haven't repented. Mm -hmm. And if you'll, if you'll repent, then you'll get the big car. And, and, you know, the relationships you want and the wealth and everything else and the health. Um, and I think that the, the, the New Testament passage that I found most helpful was in James chapter 5 from verse 7 to verse 11, where James says to suffering Christians, be patient 
until the coming of the Lord, the return of the Lord Jesus. Wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And in that context, he talks about the perseverance of Job and what the Lord finally brought about. And I think that says to us that the wonderful restoration that happened to Job in chapter 42 is an image for us of the restoration we shall experience when the Lord Jesus returns. And I found that really helpful because I thought, you know, God sometimes has mercy on us. Sometimes we get better from illnesses. Sometimes we get jobs when we were redundant. In his kindness, he gives us lots of things. But he doesn't promise those. But he does promise when Jesus returns, everything foreshadowed at the end of Job will be ours. In many ways, isn't this book, the whole, the whole of it, a picture of death and resurrection? I think so. I right? Think so. He's gone in, down, in a sense, to death. Yes. Right? Yes. And then here is this beautiful picture of That's resurrection. Right. That's right. And it is a picture of all we'll receive in the resurrection. Yeah. Uh, everything we've lost will be returned to us plus. Plus. And undeserved. Yes. And wonderful. So when you come to the end of teaching through the book of Job, what is it you hope you've really instilled uh, in those who have been sitting under your teaching? What do you hope they really take away from it? I think one of the deepest things I hope for is that Christian people will really believe in undeserved suffering and that their expectation, our expectation of the normal Christian life will include undeserved suffering because we're constantly surprised by it. We, we, we say we believe in the sufferings of Christ, but we, we don't believe that we too have to take up the cross and that we too share in his sufferings, as Romans 8 puts it, and I think Job helps us with that. And although Job's experience is extreme, it's not that every Christian will be bereft and bankrupt in the way that Job was. He was extremely great. He was extremely, um, he suffered extremely. Um, and in his extremity, he pre prefigures the Lord Jesus. But nonetheless, he does say to us, undeserved suffering is the normal experience of the people of God. And I think if we really get that, so that I, I wake up in the morning and I think things are tough, and my instinct is to say, oh, that's a bit odd, that's a bit surprising. I wake up in the morning and things are good, and I just think, well, that's how it should always be. Whereas I should wake up in the morning, and if things are good, I should think, well, this is a bit of an odd day. Whereas if things are tough, I should say, that's what it said on the tin. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And I think that's one of the deepest things I, I hope for. I mean, supremely, of course, to trust, to trust in the God of Job, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, um, and to trust in the, that, that in the vindication of Job, we see the vindication of Jesus and ultimately our vindication in him. How do we keep pointing things toward the gospel and to Jesus Christ as we preach through Job? I I think one way is, is whenever we see descriptions of suffering, of Job's sufferings, we are getting an, a little insight, a little window into the sufferings of Christ in an anticipatory way. A second way is that when Job's comforters describe the sufferings of the wicked, so in Bildad in chapter 18 has a graphic description of hell really, 
and accurate. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's terrifying. Bildad says, you know, that's what bad people get. But we want to say, no, that description of hell is what Jesus got. And, and so that's a help in taking us to Christ. And I think again and again to ask ourselves the question, how does Job in his sufferings and his loneliness and his genuine belief, how does he foreshadow Christ? Of course, he's not Christ. You know, as you rightly say, he's not perfect. If he were, then we wouldn't have needed the Lord Jesus. Um, but he foreshadows him and helps us to understand. And God's dealings with him foreshadow God's dealings with his beloved son and the suffering he took him through and the vindication at the end. Numerous times you've talked about uh, the conversations throughout the book of Job having to do with fairness uh, and with with justice. And certainly the book of Job leads us to ask the question, is fairness from God what we really want? Yes. Right? Because uh, if we got if we got what was fair, <laughs> we would uh, receive only punishment. Yes. But instead yes. we receive grace and mercy, which is simply not fair at all. Wonderfully. <laughs> Wonderfully. Yes. So why don't you close by just talking to someone who might be listening to this and is thinking about, has been working through this text, some is trying to figure out how they're going to teach rightly and effectively the book of Job. Would you just speak to them, offering them some encouragement and some direction as they prepare to teach certainly it's a daunting book and 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 i mean you 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 will find it daunting you will find there are bits that are puzzling i would i would encourage you to um help the people you're leading to get a feel for the poetry of the book and to enter into the emotions and the affections and the feelings of the book and not to short circuit those Try and get quick propositions. So go with the poetry, even when there are puzzles. And let your reading of the book be governed by what you know of the, the rest of the Bible story and the gospel. So, so no, there, there are certain things you know confidently um, from the gospel that are crystal clear in the Bible. Let those shape the way you read the book of Job. And, and and be prepared to leave bits to one side and to say, well, that's puzzling. I don't quite know what they're saying there. Um, but, but try and go with the big picture on the way through. That would be my advice. And don't get discouraged. Thank you so much, Christopher Ash, for talking through this incredible book with us. Thank you for sharing your heart for the Lord Jesus that comes through in your teaching and your presentation of Job. Thank you. It's been a privilege for me. Thank you. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian books and tracts, including The Gospel According to Job, an excellent book by Mike Mason, The Misery of Job and the Mercy of God by John Piper, and Job, The Wisdom of the Cross, written by our guest today, Christopher Ash, which is in the Preaching the Word commentary series. You can learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.